superficial Cambia también lo profundo Cambia el modo de pensar Cambia todo en este mundo Cambia el clima con los años Cambia el pastor su rebaño Y así como todo cambia Que yo cambie no es extraño This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, back with you after a long absence. On today's program, we begin a two-part commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile, which put an end to the popular unity government of Salvador Allende, one that posited a peaceful transition to socialism using the ballot box, constitutional means with vino tinto, or red wine, and empanadas. General Augusto Pinochet's ferocious coup on September 11, 1973, brought an end to that experiment and an end to President Allende's life and detained, tortured, killed, and disappeared thousands of Chileans. It also sparked an international solidarity movement as many thousands of Chileans were forced to leave their country, their families, abruptly curtailing the future so many had dreamt of as Pinochet inaugurated a wave of violence, death, and repression. Oscar Mendoza joins us from Glasgow, Scotland, where he landed in May of 1975 as a political refugee straight from Chile's prisons. We'll get his story and learn about Popular Unity's program, the effort to create an egalitarian democratic socialism, and we'll ask what we are commemorating today and whether Allende's dream of a fairer, better, and more democratic Chile lives on. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, back after some significant health challenges that are increasingly in the back or rear window, and I'm happy to be with you today. We're going to begin our two-program series marking the 50th anniversary of the September 11th, 1973 coup d'etat in Chile that overthrew the popular unity government and the life of President Salvador Allende instituted ferocious and savage mass repression and provoked enormous international solidarity. We begin today talking to Oscar Mendoza, whose life was upended on that day nearly 50 years ago, when in his words, his carefree days of youth came to an abrupt halt, followed by detention, torture, and imprisonment. Two years later, in May of 1975, Oscar was expelled from Chile and exiled to Scotland, where I greeted him, along with other members of the Chilean Solidarity Movement in Glasgow. We're going to talk more about that. We are talking to Oscar in Scotland, and he's written an article, soon to be published in Against the Current, called Chile 1973, the original 9-11, that looks back at the revolutionary process in Chile between 1970 and 73, its amazing accomplishments, crises, and its brutal end. Chile became the touchstone for the left in the 1970s, a revolutionary experiment positing a peaceful transition to socialism, a la chilena, with vino tinto and empanadas, and using institutional means 
to achieve the profound economic, social, and political transformations working people demanded, making its own blueprint based on the country's history and political traditions. We're going to get Oscar's overview of the process, how it came to such a bloody end, the international solidarity it provoked, and what it means today. Oscar asks himself two questions, and we're going to take them up too. What are we commemorating 50 years later? And does Allende's dream of a fair and better Chile live on today? We'll continue next week with another program on the 50th anniversary of the coup with Mark Cooper. And at that time, looking at the legacy of Pinochet's dictatorship and the impediments it poses for the leftist government of Gabriel Borch today. So, Oscar, welcome to the program. Let me introduce you to the audience. Oscar is a social scientist and specialist in international development cooperation. He's a former political prisoner between 1973 and 75. Oscar has been actively organizing commemorative events for the 50th anniversary of the coup on September 11th, 2023. That's coming up. And he will be in Chile to mark the anniversary. So today, we're almost to that day, 50 years ago, of the infamous Chilean coup when Augusto Pinochet put a ferocious end to that beautiful experiment and the promise that it brought forward. So Oscar, welcome to the show once again. And let's begin with an overall view of what popular unity was and how it came about give our audience some good background in the organizing and mobilization prior to Allende's victory in 1970. Hi, Susie. I'm really pleased to be able to join you. Let's look a little bit at the background then. How did the Salvador Allende electoral victory, which is, you know, commemorated on the 4th of September, so under the 4th of September, at the same date in, in 1970, the Popular Unity Coalition which was a broad-based center-left progressive alliance led by the Socialist Party of Allende himself and the Communist Party, plus some other minor forces. Some people were hesitant about nominating Allende as the presidential candidate because he had suffered three electoral defeats in his attempts to become the president of Chile. So, there was a background of around half a century of organizing by the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the trade union movement, you know, artists and intellectuals and so on, that eventually turned into this coalition to face the 1970 presidential election. It didn't come from anywhere. It, it was a solid <laughs> political, social movement that was built over a long period of time. That's a really important point to bring up because most people think that somehow there was luck in the stars and suddenly this coalition could just come together proposing a radical new uh, vision of how in the wake of the miserable experience of the Soviet Union and then again China too that imposed a view of socialism from the top down rather than the bottom up and certainly not including any form of democracy. And here we have in Chile what seemed, I guess, in the world to be a surprise victory. So maybe you could just talk a little bit now about what it was, the popular unity government, what was novel about it, and go over in the broadest form what was the Via Chilena or the Chilean way to socialism. Absolutely, Susie. I think one of the most important characteristics is that the Popular Unity Coalition uh, presented a platform of radical reform for Chile 
but very much based on a kind of democratic rule of law, institutional kind of context. There were no members of, of the Popular Unity Coalition arguing for an overthrowing you know, of, of the government of the state or whatever as some kind of radical revolution. The changes proposed were radical, but the means were very much uh, democratic politics, freedom of speech, freedom of association, etc., etc. So that, that was one thing. The second thing was that in order to present this program of radical reform, Again, the unpopular unity came up with the 40 measures. So, you know, the 40 medidas, the first 40 steps towards this massive uh, radical change. And they were radical. Well, before, Oscar, you go into those, because that was actually going to be my next question. There's one thing that, I, you know, you just said I'd like to just touch on a little bit, because what made this so different and some people felt utopian in that it couldn't succeed, was that, again, they was going to use the existing Constitution and the existing Congress and means to achieve what was a radical transformation of society, because he wasn't just an ordinary social Democrat putting a human face on capitalism. He was actually positing a peaceful road to socialism, and that made it just extraordinary and completely different. Oh, Absolutely. The eternal leader of Chilean progressive forces was a socialist. He believed in radical change, but he also was a very strongly principled democratic politician. He believed in the rule of of the majority and by legal means, and he was prepared to work with Congress, even though there was a majority against him. And he was prepared to use the 1925 Constitution as it was as a framework respect for the judiciary, respect for the separation of powers. And as I said, freedom of press, freedom of association, it, it was incredible. And that's why it was termed the Chilean way to socialism. He wasn't going to copy anybody. He wasn't right. going to be Fidel Castro. And this is important. I think it's really important because it was so novel that people just immediately dismissed that it was possible. And then on the other hand, if you look today, the attempts, let's say, by Corbyn in the Labour Party or even Bernie Sanders in the United States to put forward a view of democratic socialism and stress on the democratic because socialism uh, got such a bad name from the terrible experience of the Soviet Union and, and China to a certain extent. So let's go into the 40 measures, as you call it. What yeah. did they do and what important impact did they make in the lives of people? Well, I think it's very important to understand that as a kind of an umbrella for the 40 measures was an expansionary economic policy led by Pedro Buscovich, the Minister of Economics, which meant that unemployment was reduced significantly, real wages increased significantly, and the economy was very active. Uh, critics, and, and you know myself included, can argue that there was no uh, sufficient attention paid to monetary policy, for example, mm-hmm. and, and the central bank was very inactive at the time. However, this created a sense of dynamism. The Chilean economy grew. Unemployment, which had been growing steadily, you know, went down. Real wages, as I said, increased significantly. So there was that. And then there were the real big kind of changes. And the most important of all, was the nationalization 
of large-scale copper mining. Copper mining exports at the time accounted for around 70% Chile's earnings, so it was fundamental to the country. still is. And, and like- I should just add, too, because in case the listeners either, you know, this happened way before they were born or they don't remember, it was Anaconda Copper. And I grew up in Montana where Anaconda Copper was king. And in fact, it hastened or accelerated the downturn in Montana because Anaconda closed and said, we can't operate because Chile nationalized our mines. <laughs> and sure. so therefore, the workers demanding more in the U.S., well, sorry. And of course, the attempt there was to get them to blame the Chilean experiment. Yeah, it's Anaconda and Kennecott. And Kennecott, so, yeah. You know, two large North American multinationals. However, that the nationalization of copper was approved by the full Congress. It was unanimous. And that, until today, has had a huge beneficial impact for the state of Chile. And successive governments have been able to invest very large and substantial sums in very, very many and varied initiatives. And also set a precedent that current Boric government is, is following in terms of lithium. Which, very important. Uh, you know, Chile is one of the, of the members of the Golden Triangle in terms of lithium with Argentina and Bolivia. And is supposed to have the largest deposits of lithium, which is vital for the current economy and the future economy. So that was one. The second thing was a a deepening of the agrarian reform program, which was started by the predecessor, the Christian Democrat Eduardo Frei Montalva, which meant that large areas of unexploited, totally waste pieces of land, hectares and hectares of land, were distributed to the campesinos who worked them in, in associations and and so on. That was vital in the countryside because Chile had a huge economic potential that was never realized because of very large landowners. And even until today, mm-hmm. you know, the result of agrarian reform, although everything was reversed for a period during the dictatorship, it meant that the Chilean countryside became highly productive which it is until today. Uh, right. Our measures much more on the social policy side, including the, the liter of milk, distributing freely to children under 15 and lactated mothers, which made a huge dent on infant mortality, but also the health of young people. And it was a program that was copied across Latin America, and it still persists. So... Amazing impact on families, or kind of real day-to-day improvement in people's lives. Can you and- talk a little bit more just about that? Because I remember in the early days after the coup when all the refugees arrived in Scotland and people were discussing especially the issue of how the milk was distributed in the shanty towns and campamentos or the poorest neighborhoods where certainly everybody needed it. But I remember one lively discussion at night when Victor, who you know, I talked about how he fell out with his family. He was from the Mir. His parents were communists, and his parents were in charge of how that uh, distribution should take place in their neighborhood. And uh, they said, well, there are this many families, and therefore this many, each family gets this amount of free milk. And Victor argued with his parents, but that's not fair. We have three kids. They have, you know, our neighbors have eight and another has 11. We can't do it like that. And we have to have some mechanism where people decide 
for themselves. So maybe that to me was just so intriguing. And I think it really speaks a lot to the democratic organization that the popular unity government or not say allowed, but encouraged. So maybe you can talk a little about that. Yeah, sorry, Susie, I take the point that largely and on a massive scale, the bill distribution was made through the state organizations so that, you know, you would have local clinics with health personnel, particularly those looking after, you know, infant and, and lactating mother's health. And so that the process was very well run. In, in general, Chile has always had functioning institutions. Chile has never been anywhere close to a kind of failing state and so on. The lack of services or the lack of provision sometimes is entirely due to political reasons, you know, to mm. motives, other than the capacity of the Chilean state to deliver. So largely the program ran very smoothly. And as I said, it was copied by other Latin American countries and it was an exemplar of his case. I just wanted to mention something that to listeners, particularly for, for young people used to all their life, might seem, you know, quite amusing even, which was the setting up of the summer vacation camps. Basically, wooden structures by and large, quite simple, but they enable tens of thousands of very low-income families to have their first ever vacation, as you call it, a summer holiday by the seaside. And the pictures, because there's plenty of video evidence, photographic evidence, and obviously the testimonies of people, show these families, you know, just having a whale of a time, you know, enjoying life. And that contributed to the sense that the Allende government was different to anything that came before. And people felt identified with it. It was our government. It wasn't somebody else who was governing on behalf of the rich and powerful, as it had happened for over 150 years before. Well, that brings this to further question on the same note, and that is the level of organization in the society that helped carry forward these forms that were, as you said, really far-reaching, impactful, and radical. So how did it work? So, for example, we know that some of those shanty towns were built on the flimsiest materials, and I know that, again, they had a program to get construction materials to the shantytown so people could build better houses. How did all of that get organized and get started? Well, I mean, firstly, the, the popular unity government used the instruments of the states, so the ministries and the, the local regional secretaries and so on and so forth. But also the political parties, particularly the communist and socialist parties, were large-scale organizations with a presence across, you know, the very long and narrow stretch, <laughs> stretch of land that Chile is. And then you had the rural and urban trade union movement, which was very, very strong, university student federations. And here, what was important was voluntary work. During the Allende period, students at university contributed to voluntary works in the poorer areas and the poorer neighborhoods. Of Chile. Okay, so you've got this uh, large scale involvement, and the way you're describing it, Oscar, is that the state moved forward using its own already existing means, but it was implemented from below by students, workers, residents, all of the rest of it. But it also, of course, set up alarm bells across the society as, let's call it, the domestic 
political class and economic class that have been in power saw a dangerous shift in the balance from capital to labor, you could say, that this these reforms were going very, very far. So it kind of brings us to the early attempts domestically to destabilize the popular unity government, and then, of course, how that was joined internationally. It's a very big story, but I'd love to get your... Yeah, and, and it's it. absolutely essential. You cannot yeah. talk about the agenda government without speaking about foreign and internal domestic opposition. So even before agenda was ratified by the Congress, because he didn't obtain an absolute majority in the presidential election, he only secured 36 point something percent of the vote. Congress had to ratify. And internal opposition groups were already lobbying the army to intervene. And with support from the CIA, a group mm-hmm. tried to kidnap the head of the army, ended up, he resisted and he was dead. General Rene Schneider, who was mm-hmm. a constitutionalist. You know. And also the, the United States administration under Nixon with Kissinger at the head of the State Department. Before Allende had actually taken up the presidency, which happened, you know, later in November, they were already discussing, you know, how can we stop this? And then if we cannot stop it, how do we stop the, the reforms? How it was famously make- paraphrased, I'd say, I think it was Kissinger or Nixon that said, we're going to make the economy scream. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's well documented. And I think for, for listeners who don't know much of the history and the background of the intervention, they couldn't do any better than reading Peter Kornblow's wonderful The right. Pinochet File. Right. So internal and external opposition from the word go. So all the enthusiasm of the poor, the working classes, the students, the artists and intellectuals was absolutely mirrored by the hatred and dismay and disbelief of industrialists, you know, professional associations, anyone who was on the right. So you have this sort of development, let's say, of internal destabilization efforts by the right in concert with, you know, the economic boycott that was imposed on Chile. And I remember there was one speech of Nixon's that said, we refuse to allow Chile and Cuba to be the bread of a sandwich squeezing the rest of Latin America. It was a kind of weird metaphor, but it gave the idea that on the one hand, you had Cuba, you know, and yeah. on the other hand, you had Chile, and they were going to squeeze all the others. And what that really meant was that, you know, the model would be repeated throughout one or another aspect of that model, and they weren't going to let it happen. So it's really, I think, important to note that this you know, we have to give agency to what was going on in Chile. This wasn't just the U.S. or no, international no, capital. That right. would be so a let, ridiculous proposition. Talk the a little bit about the polarization and what developed yeah. inside. Having said, the international pressures, particularly financial and economic, were crucial because, you know, Chile was subjected to an absolute blockade in a sense of no international credit, no loans, et cetera, et cetera. But the opposition was very much internal. So the right-wing forces who had been defeated in the presidential election started conspiring against the government from from the world goal. They just wouldn't allow it to succeed. So we have that first year that is very successful. The economy is doing well. People are very buoyant and so on. The municipal elections in March 71 Popular unity does extremely well. So the regional mayors and 
counselors and so on. They have a huge number of people from the socialists, communists, and other parties involved in their unity. By the end of 71, turning into 72, the right-wing opposition really gets going. And we have the beginning of strikes, but these are not workers' strikes. You know, these yeah. are the patrones, as we say in Chile. So, you know, the owners of, of companies or the owners of road transport fleets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And also, the start of 72 sees something absolutely incredible for Chile at the time, which was absolute lack of basic goods available yeah. in the supermarkets, in the shops, and so on. But because of hoarding, right-wing retailers and supporters, they start hoarding essentials. You know, we're talking about sugar, oil, tea, and obviously chicken, milk, meat, all those kind of things. And that becomes a calorie for people because they, they have to get up on the crack of dawn to join long queues, you know, long, long lists of people there to try to get the essential just to run their household. And, and how did, yeah, go ahead, because this is the beginning of a period where you're going to see more and more, well, discontent on the one hand from people who are in long lines for basic goods. But can you talk a little bit about who formed the opposition at that point? I know it leads up to the famous, you know, March of the Pots and Pans, which we can get into. But just how did the shortages contribute to the increasing polarization? Well, the shortages were just one element in a sense, because the right-wing media and Chile's media was absolutely dominated by TV channels and newspapers in particular, but also a long list of radio stations. They were very much aligned with the opposition. The opposition initially was divided between Christian Democratic Party. They had been in power the six years before I ended, but they had presented a very progressive candidate themselves. And the right-wing of, of Chile, the traditional right wing, represented by the National Party, but as things deteriorated and dialogue between Allende and the opposition just came to an abrupt halt because the, the opposition were determined to prevent Allende from implementing the program. And Allende kept saying, I was elected on this platform. I cannot do anything other than to implement the program that the people put me in this Moneda Palace for. And then the opposition becomes more united. It's also to do with economic interests, industrialists, association, you know, so far, as if you say, whatever. They start, you know, lobbying against the government and against every single change that was made. And things become fairly radicalized on both sides. So on the one side, you have people on the left who are wanting more and more rapid change, and on the right, people who just wanted an end to the end of period. And that kind of brings us, Oscar, into toward the end of 1972. Remember, this is a, the political process literally goes from 1970 to 73. So you have this first successful year that you've just gone over and the measures that increased the popularity of the Allende government, rather as the right thought that the shortages and everything else would decrease it, and it had the opposite effect. But then you have the famous trucker strike or lorry driver's strike. And this, I think you should just touch on I think at least you need to be it... more precise, Susie. Sorry. Yes. All right. Because it wasn't the drivers, yeah? It yeah. was the owners, the owners of large transport fleets 
Well, that's what I wanted you to actually say, because it was very confusing. I can tell you as somebody who was reading it from afar and first looking and I go, wait, 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 wait. You've got truckers on strike in favor of the right? No, no, that wasn't the case. Basically, the fleet owners decide to put the squeeze on the government of Chile in order to pursue their political agenda, really, because they didn't have any other agenda. And what happens is that it was a really strange period because you had hundreds and hundreds of truck drivers on strike because of the owners of the fleet had decided to paralyze the country. But they continued to earn, and they earned in dollars. Dollars were freely available, and you could see it. You could see the truckers actually changing dollars or using dollars, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very clearly funded from elsewhere. I don't want to point any fingers, but we know where the dollar comes from. No, we. Anyway. This was very well documented, even at the time, you know, Absolutely. as as it unrolled. So then we get up to this crisis, right? And you've got the early polarization, and now the strike of capital, I guess you could say, in these fleets of trucking and transportation. But then you come up to the March seventy three elections, and what happens there? I think it's important to just finish off on the point of the big strike because it mm-hmm. was a month long strike that brought Chile to its knees because, you know, most transport in Chile is by road. Uh, and there's, there's no railway north of Santiago, you know, so all the north is, is covered by truck. Uh, as a compromise to try to improve the situation, Allende brought the head of the army, General Prats, as interior minister, mm-hmm. and some other high-ranking armed forces officers into the cabin. So it was a civilian military cabin, but, you know, unheard of very much opposed by part of the left, including popular unity sectors. But Allende was seeking to bring peace and and stability to the country. Then comes the the summer of 73, because in Chile, the summer obviously is, you know, January, February, March. It's not in in July. Uh, And and that kind of gave respite because of the summer recess. But it was reignited again with a campaign for the parliamentary elections, electing everyone in the lower house and some of the senators, and against every single prediction, against all the polls and all the public opinion, the Popular Unity Coalition, instead of losing support in respect of Allende's victory in 1970, increased its support to well over 40%, and that put an end to the opposition's idea that they would be able to reach the two-thirds majority in Congress that would enable it to impeach Allende, which was the aim. Yeah. Right. Could you also say something about, let's say, Allende and the popular unity's conception of the role of the military? Because Chile, as you've stressed, had this very strong constitutional structure where the military did not get involved in politics. How much did this influence Allende's attempt to bring peace by incorporating part of the military into the government to this idea that the military does what it does and it is and what it does does not get involved in politics. Yeah, as, as I said, it was highly controversial measure. However, Allende believed firmly and he could have that assurance because first, General René Schneider had died to make possible Allende take it office. And then General Prats was absolutely committed to the principle that the military don't get involved in politics, that Allende had been elected democratically. 
that he was acting in accordance to the Constitution and the laws, and that if people wanted to get rid of him, they had to wait till 1976 and put up a candidate in the election, which, if we imagine a Chile without a coup, it's quite possible the former president, Eduardo Frey Montalva, was a Christian Democrat, could have won an election, you know, in 1976. And we would have saved ourselves all the suffering, the horror, and the misery of 17 years of, of dictatorship. Let's move into that then. But first, I think just a little brief catch up to September 1973. So you've got the military coming into the government, but then in March, popular unity increases its support to 44 or more percent. And then what happens? The armed forces then leave the cabinet. What happens? And then talk about the Tancaso too. Yeah, the civilian military cabinet was always seen as a temporary solution to try to bring stability to the country. Within the armed forces, coup supporters in the high-ranking officers, generals, admirals, air force chiefs, they start to pressure the high-ranking leadership of the different armed forces to withdraw from serving in the government. And also they start plotting against Allende very secretly to start with, but then not so secretly, because we have the famous Tank Castle, which is the tank regiment attempted putsch in, at the end of June 1973, that later was seen very much by everyone as a dress rehearsal. Basically, the military tried to see what would happen. You know, thankfully, the tank regiment putsch was put down by General Bratz at the head of the army, and there were only some casualties, because some people did die on that day, you know, as a result of the army uh, intervention. But it was a relatively small number of people, and the situation was brought under control. But that was the run-up to September. We're talking about end of June. You know, beginning of September is not far. So what did happen in those days? Because I remember discussions about massive mobilizations to defend Allende. You know, Allende, Allende, the people, it doesn't rhyme in English, but the people defend you. Um, So how did that, you know, was that spontaneous? Was that organized? And what did that do, let's say, since the Tancoso did not succeed, you know, how did that play out on a daily basis? I mean, the, the country was so highly polarized. The mobilization was not only on behalf of the Allende government or Allende supporters, you know, like myself. But yes, indeed, we came out in hundreds of thousands to the streets to support the government. At the same time, the right wing held their own demonstrations against the government, the banging of the pods and all that kind of stuff. The women of the right played a very important role because the wives of the generals harassed and hounded General Prats until he was forced to resign at the end of August 1973. And really, that was the final part of the plan. Without General Prats at the head of the army, the plotters, the supporters of the coup, the people like Arellano Stark, who'd been in discussions with the United States administration and so on, they were ready then to strike. And Allende was very conscious of this, and we were all very conscious. We lived in a climate of absolute tension and anxiety, as in expecting a coup to happen at any moment. Because of that, Allende made the very difficult decision to call for a referendum. Basically, he was going to call the Chilean people to the ballot box once more, 
showing again and again that he was a democratic socialist. You know, he believed mm. in the ballot box. He believed in institutions. He believed in the rule of law. And he was ready to make his announcement on the 11th of September, 1973, calling it a referendum. And he has said, if I lose the referendum, I'll leave. You know, I'll leave the Moneda Palace and somebody else can take over. But let's do this, you know, as a democratic country with democratic institutions, and let's show the world that the Chilean way, you know, the revolution towards socialism with the red wine and empanadas was not just a form of speech. It was something he truly believed in, and he was absolutely committed to. Uh, however, the, the, army, the, the armed forces chose that same day, and they went ahead with the coup, and the rest is very well documented. So we know that the beautiful experiment was brought to an end on September 11th, 1973, and that President Allende died. But then you get this horrendous, ferocious, brutal repression that shocked everyone, a a curfew, toque de queda, outlawing long hair and women wearing pants. And just it, it was so much larger than anyone could have ever expected. Maybe at this point, Oscar, a half an hour into our discussion, talk about your own experience in this period and your involvement, yeah. let's say, even in the inner circle of Allende. What happened yeah. to you? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that perhaps because uh, so many of us were young and inexperienced and idealist, although we were expecting the coup, the coup was felt in the air, you breathe it, you almost touch it. The brutality of the repression was something that was extremely difficult to comprehend, particularly at first. I think the older Communist Party members and leaders who had been persecuted earlier in the history of the country, they probably knew what many people call the fascist repression would do. But I I certainly find it brutal to an extent, very, very difficult to comprehend for a young, naive, stupid young person in a way. I was uh, woken up the, the day of the coup. I was visiting my, my sister, who had uh, two little girls by then, my nieces, who are still you know, very much around, because my mother was visiting from our hometown in the south of the country, you know, a couple of hours away from Santiago. As a dutiful son, I had turned up and stayed for a couple of nights so I could see my mom, and she wouldn't be so worried about me. And basically what happened by my brother-in-law, he was a very involved activist in the Socialist Party, and he formed part of a, a small detachment that was in charge of the security of the party, including the security of the, of the Central Committee and so on. It also provided by a number of the members of the Presidential Guard, the GAP, and he was called to his duties. And without hesitating, I joined him. And it was quite a surreal experience in, in a way, because I fully expected my mother to try to stop me. I was 19, so I was very, very young, and I had no experience as my brother-in-law did. But instead, she just gave me a big hug and kiss, and she said, you know, look after yourself, which I promised I would do. And then we went off. And the day proceeded quite simply. We joined the leadership of the Socialist Party. The Politburo had had its own meeting very early in the morning. And then representatives of of the leadership met with the security team of the party to decide what would be the next steps. 
at the time, a plan was formulated to form an armed column to go into the city center of Santiago and try to extricate the president from the Moneda Palace. That, that was the original idea. And then there was a meeting of the leadership of the party, some members of the Politburo and the head of the security team, with the leadership of the Communist Party and of the Mir, you know, the movement of the revolutionary left. Very, very famous people who have gone into historical annals are present at this meeting. For instance, Victor Diaz, who was the general secretary of the Communist Party in clandestinity, and who disappeared with the rest of the members of the leadership in 1976. And also for the mayor, Miguel Enriquez, the general secretary, who was killed at the end of 1974 by the secret police of Pinochet. So this was a very high-level meeting, and it went like this. Socialist Party representatives say, are you coming with us? We are going into town, and we are going to try to get Allende out and bring him to the popular neighborhoods, you know, where the working classes, the cordones industriales, the networks of factory workers, you know, a little bit like the Soviets in the Bolshevik Revolution. Are you with us? And basically, Communist Party representatives said, no, we are waiting to see if the dictatorship will close down Congress, see how, how far this is going. And then we'll make a decision on, on what to do next. And in the meantime, we are going into clandestinity. The mayor said, yes, we could help, but we only have a small number of people who are trained militarily, and we cannot get them ready <laughs> until later in the afternoon. You can imagine how flabbergasted socialist leadership was. Mm. Because the mayor had been promoting armed struggle and all that kind of stuff, and then on the day that the military were there attacking the government, bombing the Moneda Palace, bombing the, the presidential residence at Tomás Moro, and had started really the killings, they weren't ready. So basically, the socialist delegation was ready to leave and try to execute the plan to free Allende from the blockade in the Moneda Palace, when uh, special forces of the police came and started shooting. So the, the whole beating disbanded very, very quickly. And from then on, for the rest of the 11th of September, the forces of the Socialist Party security team, including members of the leadership and including most prominently Ezequiel Ponce, the general secretary of the leadership in clandestinity that disappeared in its entirety in June of 1975. Ezequiel Ponce was there on the day in combat to defend the popular unity government and our comrade president. We didn't even know that Allende had died in mm -hmm. La Manera Palace until much later that day in the evening. But then the only decision possible was, okay, let's put away you know, the irons, as we, we call them, and, and let's try to survive. Let's go into clandestinity too. And then, of course, as the world knew and, and quickly saw that the two uh, football stadiums were turned into concentration camps, my own husband and your friend Roberto Naduris was arrested two days after the coup, young university professor, along with uh, others, and um, held in the stadium for 60 days and tortured, of course, as everyone was. There was massive repression. What then happened to you in the next two weeks, Oscar? Well, initially, it took us about two and a half days, actually, to get out 
from the area of Santiago sites where all this uh, activity happened on the day of the coup. Initially, I was relatively fine. I just had my hair cut because I had very long hair at the time. So I had not quite a military cut, but a quite short hairstyle. And it took until the 30th of September when I was arrested whilst I was visiting my family in my hometown of Curicó. Only many, many years later, it came to light that the order for my detention was issued by General Sergio Arellano Stark, mm. infamous leader of the Caron of Death, you know, the military delegation that Pinochet authorized to go around the country, and that resulted in the illegal extrajudicial execution of dozens of, of Chilean prisoners. You're probably uh, one of the few survivors of that caravan of, of death. I am indeed. I had to take part in the court proceedings, so I, I had to give my statement as a witness because after I was arrested, I was actually transferred back to Santiago by a military team. And alongside was Wagner Salinas and Francisco Lara, two members of Allende's presidential guard. And uh, whilst they were executed on the 5th of October, 73, I was taken to the National Stadium where I was kept for a month before a small number of us, about 250 or so, were transferred to the penitentiary of Santiago. And how long were you in the penitentiary? Well, in the penitentiary, I stayed for the rest of my detention period. So from the first few days of November, 73, until the 19th of May of 75, when I was taken from the prison to the central headquarters of the investigative police, PDI, as it's called today, and from there to the International Airport at Pudahuel in Santiago. Boarded my Swiss Air flight to Geneva, connected to London Heathrow, and from the 20th of May of 75, I have been a resident of the United Kingdom, initially as a political refugee. I always say that I was a political refugee because I could return to Chile after 1988, I chose to remain in Scotland, married two Scottish-born and brought up boys, so it was my choice to, to stay in Scotland. It's like my story. Yeah, and I should just say at, at the opposite end that I was there to greet you, along with Jackie O'Brien and other members of what we formed, the Scottish Solidarity with Chile Committee. And I'll never forget, we had already met many refugees, but I think you were one of the youngest and also one of the most beat up, you know, with bayonets. Yeah. I was I mean, certainly one of the, the youngest throughout the National Stadium or the penitentiary and so on. The majority of people were older, but they weren't that much older. What people <laughs> failed to grasp is that we lost a generation, over 3,300 killed, 1,400 disappeared, quarter of a million of exiles. We lost a whole generation of talented, committed young people. And when I say we lost, Chile lost. You know, yeah. Chile would have been a very different place if all those people had been there as part of its development, of its progression, and, and so on. Well, in the remaining part of the show, Oscar Mendo, so let's talk a little bit about that you were able to come to Scotland and that we had a functioning solidarity committee. There were solidarity committees all over the world. Chile, in a sense, because of the the beauty of the experiment, the first one that was going to try to create this 
Chilean Road to Socialism that was a democratic socialist uh, way, it was a touchstone, as I mentioned in the beginning, much more like the Spanish Civil War was a touchstone in the 1930s. But here now in the 1970s, internationally, you got committees organized, refugees welcomed, scholarships given to refugees so that they could begin new lives in universities abroad, especially in Britain, where you went. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of international solidarity as it was expressed in those early years? Yeah, I mean, over these days and taking part in different events and so on, I've uh, highlighted the role of international solidarity. I think solidarity was something that started as soon as Allende was elected, because the whole world, you know, progressive forces all across, you know, North America, Latin America, obviously, but North America, Europe, and further afield, they felt, whoa, what's going on here? You know, so this is a, a wild socialist guy, and he's saying, I'll make those profound transformational structural changes to Chile, but within the law, and, and you know, on the basis of the ballot box and the respect for institutions. So there was a, a huge movement of solidarity and warmth towards Allende and his government. Naturally, when the coup happened and, and the brutality of killings, the torture, etc., etc., became apparent. And as soon as refugees started to flow in, and other exiles, there were people who were not in prison, were not detained, but felt compelled to leave because they had lost their jobs, they were being harassed and persecuted, their neighbors were denouncing them, etc., etc. So they also came and lived abroad. So they were committees. In the UK, Chile's Solidarity Campaign was huge. The Chile Committee for Human Rights was set up. And what is now or I think it changed name now, but it was the medical foundation for the aid to the victims of torture was born out of the Chilean experience. So the solidarity was incredible. Trade unions adopting jail trade unionists, uh, academic institutions such offering places and also grants, you know, universities, whatever, scholarships, whatever you want to call it. So it was hugely important, and we are forever grateful. I will never cease to express our thanks for the solidarity shown to us. As I put it just a couple of days ago at a civic reception in Glasgow, we came as broken people. You know, we arrived with our dreams shattered, our lives shattered, you know, separated from our families. But thanks to the warmth and generosity of the peoples around the world who welcomed us, we were able to build, you know, good, positive, happy lives and contribute to our society, you know, and become members of unions ourselves and, and, you know, political activists, environmental activists, artists, you know, intellectuals, and so on. So absolutely vital. And it was very much reciprocal because the Chilean experience touched the lives of everybody who became involved with it. And I think it wouldn't have happened had you not seen this experiment that was profoundly egalitarian and that President Allende, along with the Popular Unity Coalition, were what we would call consequente, that they were consistent in trying to implement the reforms that they proposed in the platform. And so it was a very different sort of experiment and one that really inspired hope and became a beacon, a kind of magnet for young people everywhere to want to try to do something similar. And of course, as we know, uh, because now we're approaching the 50th anniversary of that coup, 
And we have another leftist government in power now in Chile who is facing, you know, horrendous backlash within the country itself, even over what this 50th anniversary represents. So, uh, because you mentioned as we were speaking, Oscar, about various people who were disappeared, you know, we don't know quite yet how many actually were disappeared, which and that word entered into the vernacular disappeared because before that people could just be killed. Right? And now they, Absolutely. we never knew what happened to them. So why don't you talk a little bit more about that and about the plan that Boric, the president of Chile, announced on August 29th to actually mount and finance a national search for the unaccounted disappeared. Yeah. Well, the New York Times actually carried a very good piece on this. Essentially, the Boric government used the International Day of the Victims of Forced Disappearance, which is the 30th of August, to announce a state-funded and organized plan to search for the truth, to find out what actually happened and be able to, in some measure, be able to help the relatives who spent you know, half a decade looking for their disappeared. Going back to Boric, there are very many similarities between the opposition, the kind of intransigent, obdurate, and nasty opposition to the Boric reforms, which are very simple, you know, improving the minimum salary, improving pensions, you know, trying to fund better education and health, you know, <laughs> simple things. Look after the environment, keep the control of the wealth of lithium. For the country, you know, the opposition is just absolutely horrendous. And the worst aspect is that they vindicate the coup d'etat. And they say things like, well, well, they were some human rights abuses, but the dictatorship brought prosperity and this and that and the other. And all you lefties want to do with the 50th anniversary is reopen all these things that should be in the past. We should be looking to the future. And we say to them, without memory, without truth, without justice, there cannot be any future, at least not the future of a healthy, united country. And I've always felt, because I have friends among the disappeared, for example, I went to school with a guy who was born on exactly the same date as me, Carlos Guerrero, member of the Mir, and he disappeared at the end of 74. And, you know, I cannot ignore that. It's impossible. It'll mm-hmm. carry with me until the day I'm gone. So it's very important, you know, A, that we support the Boris government. Whatever, you know, their failings, their mistakes, and so on, the aim is to make changes for the good of the majority of Chile and, and also support all efforts for truth, justice, reparation to the victims, and an absolute commitment that never again, nunca más. And I should add to that, because it's something you say all the time, honor and glory to those who died and fought, and ni olvida ni perdón, which means never forgotten and never pardoned, those who, who perpetrated these crimes. Oscar, I can't thank you enough, but I have one final question, because you devoted so much of the rest of your time in your professional life to helping migrants and refugees uh, all over the world. Can you just finally say something about the significance of this date and the commemoration in the context of what's going on now in the world? Sure. We feel very strongly that the same hand of friendship that was extended to us, people who benefited from asylum, must be 
the hand of friendship extended to all those thousands and even millions of people who have to abandon their lands, maybe because you're a gay person in Iran or you are opposed to the government in, in Ethiopia or, or wherever. I'm, I'm only using those examples. There are very, very many opposition politicians in Russia, in other Latin American countries, you know, uh, journalists that are harassed or in prison and so on. Nobody leaves their own country as a thing. You know, it's not a thing. Exile is to die a little, and nobody wants to leave their homeland, their people, their loved ones, their food, the traditions, their families, everything that they know and love. So asylum is a right, and it's a right that should be extended to all who need it. Oscar Mendoza, I can't thank you enough for the program today. And just finally, to let people know, Oscar is a social scientist and specialist in international development and cooperation. And as you have all learned, he was a former political prisoner between 1973 and 1975 when he arrived in Scotland as a political refugee from Pinochet's dictatorship. Oscar has been actively organizing the commemorative events for the 50th anniversary of the coup, which takes place this September 11th. And last but not least, Oscar, you're leaving on Monday for Chile to be there, part of that commemoration in Chile itself, right? I felt it was an important part of my life, Susie. I could have watched from overseas. You know, I could have watched from thousands of miles how the people of Chile uh, remember Allende, the fallen, the disappeared, and all those who struggle to restore democracy and who continue to struggle on a daily basis to build a fairer society. Because we must maintain Allende's dream alive. We can make Chile a better country. And, you know, Allende vive y venceremos. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.